Hello guys, welcome to the latest podcast. Appreciate you clicking on the button. This one comes from a rainy midsummer siren cess today up the road from me in Cheltenham on my way actually to Sky Sports for a shift tonight. But I'm very pleased to say it's going to be a football-centric conversation, but actually got an actor on. You'll know him as an actor if you're a fan of this country, which is set around these parts in Gloucestershire. Uh, kind of a satirical sitcom comedy show on BBC and uh, Paul Cooper, I thought you were an actor, but you just told me you've never acted before, but football's more of a, a main thread in your life. And we met on a football pitch a couple of weeks ago and you had a stunning reflex save to win us a, a penalty shootout in the charity match, which actually kind of completely confused me because it was a good save, wasn't it? It was. It was an amazing save, really, considering. But the guy who did it said that he hit it at that height, you know, a good height for me to tip under the bar. So it's right behind it. There was a solid shot, right foot yeah, strike, just to your so. right. Yeah, you got re- <laughs> your reflexes are still there. I think he was making excuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they were trying to throw it our way. We ended up winning the penalty shootout in that game. Um, but how are you? Well, you're, you're doing a third series of this country and. The Indian summer of, of your acting career is going pretty well. Yeah, amazing, really. Um, yeah, people think I'm an actor, but I do three days acting a year and the, the rest of the time I do a normal job. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, in my 60s, to be able to kind of be on a, a, you know, start acting and being on a BAFTA winning series is extraordinary. Talk about kind of a bucket list, you know. Well, you, you're a brilliant actor. It's amazing that, you know, playing Martin Mucklow, um, who's uh, he's not your everyday guy in terms of his emotional uh, range and things like that. And the fact is, he's, by his own definition, think incapable of love is is what he said in one of the one of the episodes. I remember to his daughter, Kerry. Um, but you're here in a Fulham football club jacket as well. Uh, football's been a big part, isn't it? And you you see football, I think, like I do, and sport in particular. And that's what this podcast is about. As something that has really facilitated life as being a community builder and perhaps sometimes we see ills in football we can we can influence society through through football perhaps yeah m- most uh, certainly i mean it's it's you know football has been a huge thing all the way through my life you know i was kind of grew up born in the 50s but kind of grew up in the 60s and and street football so i'd never had a coach in my life you know so yeah. so every day we were out playing making new friends and we formed our own team and 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 um, went round door to door, um, raffling, you know, kind of a box of chocolates and things like this to get money for kit and whatever. So, so in, that, in those days, it'd be literally in the street. So, because I'm, I'm pictures of my mum's street, she grew up in even West London in the fifties, but there were um, very little cars at those times. It's one or one or two cars in the street. Mm. Well, it was streets, the playground. Um, uh, and the park, where, wherever there was a game, you know, we'd, we'd kind of play, you know, so, so, and, and I think that's what's kind of missing from today, really, you know, was, was the variety, you know, mm. um, you could be playing 20 a side, four a side, 5v6, you could be playing on grass, concrete, tarmac, dirt, with a <laughs> tennis ball, a stone, a proper football, you know, it, yeah. with older kids, I think that's the other thing is, is there's no opportunity for, for children seemingly now to play with kids of mixed ages which seems yeah which seems it's crazy it's interesting we yeah well it's interesting i was one of four boys and i was the eldest we used to play in the back garden with a 10 year gap between me and my youngest brother and i think he'll he'll say and the younger brothers as well that playing with my friends as well in the back garden was a big part of them growing up when you're eight years old playing with 18 year olds it was uh, it was a huge gap and i think they learned to, to sort of live up to that and, and just get on and communicate with people as well what's behind that because it's because we were talking before we started recording that when you see people exercising in public now it's often 
you know, grown men or women jogging, cycling, playing football, playing tennis? Is it fear that's crept into society about kids not able to to leave the front door until they're until they're of a certain age? What's the the main factor as a parent yourself as well? Yeah, I think so. I think well, I think one thing is traffic. Um, obviously, there's a hell of a lot more traffic on the road now that it used to be. Um, but yeah, it's that kind of stranger danger that that we just don't, you know, that society. You know, so much of it now is is kind of about fear, but I don't think there's any more danger than there was kind of back in you know mm. back in the day. But um, well, safety in those numbers you're talking about as well, aren't there? In whole communities playing football, yeah. 20, 30 kids. Yeah, that that's right. Everyone who's kind of looked after everyone else, and as long as you were in for your tea, you know, you could kind of do what you wanted. But you, you know, you were sensible and resilient, and you know, you knew who not to go with and who you know who to to go with. And I think that. Kids now will go out and, and they probably won't have a clue. You yeah, know? we we kind of you know we, we kind of learn quick. You know, yeah. And I think someone has read a quote the other week: forty thousand generations have have learnt about life by going out, making their own games up, playing their own games, and one generation hasn't. Hmm. So th- these are very different times. It's totally changed. You know, we, yeah, we yeah. haven't been in this. In, in this kind of society before, you know. Yeah. So it's extraordinary. It's interesting because my little girl's four and she's about to go to school and one thing we've struggled with at nursery has been separation anxiety from her mum in particular and, and it's been a kind of thing for her of saying, you know, look, you get nervous, you go out, you, you see people, you meet people and then you feel fine. It's kind of the cycle of life. You do something, you feel a bit of trepidation and you do it. You wonder keeping people away too long from the real world if it's at home playing on playstations and we're talking about the wonders of technology is that i can record this podcast now with you and send it out potentially to someone in mongolia could listen to it later on or whatever so it's incredible that capacity but the fact that maybe technology can lead to to kids staying in more revolving around ipads and so on and so forth that those social skills that you will at some point need aren't being grown and perhaps that was facilitated a lot through and I was grow, grew up the road in Malvern and a pretty local community to here and that's interesting that's part of the reason why I think it particularly resonated this country with me and the eccentric characters you get in rural communities in Britain but I'd go out and play football be playground morning break lunch break and then you'd go in the evening and play on a common or you play for a team a couple of nights a week and then on a Sunday and there was always different groups of friends and you end up knowing sort of hundreds of people and having to yeah. converse and get on with hundreds of people from different backgrounds through through sport. And I That's suppose right. it is an important part of your education. It's not necessarily listed on the on your GCSEs. No, absolutely. You know, you you all all life skills were, were learnt really from doing that. You know, you had to get on and you know, you had to compromise and um it was a terrific, it's a terrific way to grow up. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, it was so much fun. You're never bored. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was just, there was something going on all the time, you know. And you get knocked over and pick yourself up. And- exactly. And, and when you weren't, um, uh, and when it was, the weather was so awful that you did stay indoors, then you played Sabutio all day, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sabutio. <laughs> Well, if it got commercialised in the nineties when I was a kid, because you had Sabutio, Man United, three, four kids as well by that stage, so it was uh, it's probably not as pure as when when you began with it. Well, when I, when Sabuto we started was was the, actually the the figure was the 
the base was the same, but the top bit was cardboard. Really? And it was quite kind of tall, but then they brought in the kind of cellular... Oh, God, we've had, you know... Didn't that just break, though, if it's cardboard, when you flicked it? it no, it was strong kind of cardboard, uh, okay. but it um, wasn't nearly as good as the kind of the WhatsApp figures. I mean, I was absolutely addicted to Subutu. I mean, it <laughs> it's a funny game to put when you think about it, isn't it? It's just sort of throwing something at a plastic ball and, and hoping it goes in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, we did, my brother and I, Trevor, you know, who's plays Len in the series, um, we did a whole FA Cup with uh, 32 teams and played 90 minutes a match and yeah. went down to the final <laughs> one, one holiday. And I think the weather was really bad or whatever. it was. I think it was the summer of the winter of 63 or whatever when it was kind of frozen for kind of weeks. So really? we, we kind of played, <laughs> we did a you know, full FA Cup, 32 teams. It was hilarious. It's yeah. funny about the, sort of the, the, myth, the mythological sort of winters and summers before you were born. Cause the summer of 76 is one that people always talked about. I remember when I was doing kind of labouring jobs, the older boys would talk about 76 as being a, a very, very hot summer what so what how would you compare sabutio and things like that and the difference because people might say now that kids are playing fifa and they're becoming professional video game players earning potential i think the chap recently won in the states millions of pounds to to, to do it but i guess the, th- the reality is even if you're talking through a headset to someone across the world it's not necessarily the same humanity and and, and sort of realness of of being outside and also you know increasingly the research is yes that actually being in daylight is integral for kids health and development oh absolutely i mean a kind of vitamin d and you know we were out all the time you know i mean i think i think it will sh- you know probably in the years to come it will show that that kids that haven't been out enough are going to really suffer you mm. know um with their health um you know you, you, you've got to get out there you know for, for, yeah, for, for both mental your health, health and your yeah. physical health so i i think it's i don't i don't think we really know um, we were mentioned actually in a in a book uh, um, uh, a patron of the, the charity that I'm involved in the National Children's Football Alliance um, guy, a lady called Sue Palmer who wrote a very interesting book about 10 years ago but it's been the, the prophecy of it has been called Toxic Childhood yeah and I think really kind of now um, you know that childhood is quite toxic you know even from things like you know the kind of you know, the homes now are kind of sprayed liberally with kind of, you know, <laughs> various kind of, you know, protect against germs. So kids are kind of getting asthma and not building up immune systems and yeah. and all sorts. So it, it's... Um, Bit, yeah, yeah, potentially being sort of fed food at nursery rather than at home and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's kind of, it, it's, you know, very kind of different times, you know. I mean, you know, we... we uh, we just kind of got on with it, really. And it's, it's interesting, my daughter as well, because my wife feels really guilty because she was showing her at the age of one and two Disney films because that's promoted as romantic, feel-good, happy films. But actually, most of the main thread of the plot or subplot is the parents disappearing and dying. So what she realised is that she was, you know, traumatising her in some senses before she could even speak to a point or articulate this. And now my daughter won't watch those things. I think she's particularly genetically sensitive. And my wife was... Sensitive as a as a young girl, my brother, you know, is a, remember him as the same age, my baby brother, all watching sort of uh, Sylvester Stallone films at the same time and not minding. But it's interesting because we show them things like that and we think, oh, they're nice and safe at home, but then we won't let them out and play football. So it's mm. it's quite interesting yeah. sometimes the what we classify as safe and and not safe and the and the um the power of of sport. But the charity stuff that you've done, you, the, the National Football Alliance. What are you guys working in currently, and what's your history in in trying to get movements to? to help people through football and then use football to, to help people. Mm. 
Well, it started off about 12 years ago with, um, um, it was more of a campaign called Give Us Back Our Game, which was kind of really looking about, you know, the, the kind of street football that was played in the streets, parks, playgrounds, you know, the kind of benefits of that and whether mm. we could kind of put that into um, kids' football at present because it's very, you know, we used to call it the Premier League for tots, you know, because as soon as you put kids into a team, it's all suddenly becomes all about the result and it's very much yeah. the kind of ad- adultification of the, the game. And I work with a guy... Um, uh, called um, Rick Fanolio, who's um, was looking at the kind of you know, the evidence kind of base behind it. Um, um, he was working up at Ma- Manchester Metropolitan University and actually doing um, a study with Manchester United on their yeah. Then it was uh, then it was new. It was, they were doing a kind of totally different from the other academies and doing a four v four games with the kids refereeing themselves and, and different sorts of of games was this at United was it actually at their academy or yes yeah, yeah. at the academy um, and um, you know the, and, and there's some interesting kind of results from that but the the NCFA is 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 kind of what we've really kind of based most most things around is is the um, the football games during the Christmas truce in 1914 yeah. uh, and 1915 as well because it went on for a couple of couple of Christmases. Oh, did it? I I, only th- I didn't realise that. I thought it was the first one. I didn't realise it. No, there were there were a couple of other Christmas truces as well and football was kind of played that. So everything we do revolves around that and um, there is a pitch now, uh, the Flanders Peace pitch in Mazines, mm. which is near, well, kind of right by the um, Christmas truce and where one of the games was played. And if you can have a game of football against your enemy... During a First World War, you know, during a World War, anything is possible, and that's yes. that's what football is so great. It's a yeah. leveler. So we have kids um, from all sorts of backgrounds uh, from around the world um, who come to a week. We 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 have a week in September, and uh, they participate in kind of jumpers for goalpost football. We do mm. touch rugby, quick cricket, the games that were being played in Britain during the kind of First World War. Yeah. And they do other events, um, they do workshops, graffiti, art graffiti, dance, movement. They go on nighttime war walks, we go on bike rides, we go to muse- First World War museums, uh, cemeteries, and we also take part in the um, last post ceremony at the Menin Gate. Mm. And so they're there for a week, and um, they go away as ambassadors for peace, and their lives just change. You know, we, we, we kind of follow the kids, you know, yeah. two or three years later to see how they're doing. And it's incredible, the kind of change. And and these are kids from kind of... Self-confidence and belief, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we had some kids from, from Kent who were struggling at school, struggling with behaviour. And, you know, we, we tracked them back a few years later and they were going to university, you know. Wow. Um, and we've got kids from uh, refugee kids... Uh, 20 refugee kids. We have 80 coming this, this September. So they in, include uh, refugee kids, 20 refugee kids based in Belgium from 14 different countries. Uh, kids from Northern Ireland, Protestant and Catholic. Kids from Essex, Germany, um, Italy. And also we've got 10 children from uh, the slums in Chennai coming over. So they've never been out of the slums, let alone... 
wow. Chennai and let alone India. So, yeah. And the year after, we were working on a project with um, Palestinian and Israeli kids. To play, so, to play together? Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So what we, do to, to, what we do is we twin a pitch. So if, if you want to come over to, to the Peace Games, you need to twin a pitch with um, uh, the um, Flanders Peace Pitch. So, for instance, last year we, we twinned uh, the Craiger Green, which is... Um, on the Craiger Estate, which is mm. just a bit of green outside George Best's house, where he learned to play football. Yeah. So we had um, a ceremony there, um, a plaque's put up there, and a plaque's put up at the the peace pitch, and we had the British Legion doing the you know the last post, and 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 we played a, a game of football with mixed uh, Catholic and Protestant kids. It's amazing. And, and um, it was Eastern Europe would be one potentially you could look at, isn't it? For, for, yeah, for, for, for communities that were. You know, small communities are then ripped apart. Yeah, we we were kind of in discussions with um, community in Bosnia, but yeah, because when the national teams of those areas play, we sometimes see issues flare up. Yeah, so it'd be absolutely. good almost for the kids to yeah. to prove to, yeah, to mend something, something better. Yeah, and football just works. It's just a, you know, it's just you know, football and music. We find you know because the kids get their phones out, and whatever, and yeah. play different music and. Think, Those are the two things that really communicate. Do we tap into our sort of higher self in some ways, do you think, through sport? Kind of, what is it about us that, that loses some of those that tribalism? We'll go on to talking about yeah. sometimes it incites tribalism it, as well. But It just breaks barriers, Dan. You just see that ball. It's, it's funny, actually. The kids, uh, when we kind of get there and all the kids kind of come off their various coaches, usually someone just produces a ball and they're playing within a minute. It's actually the the kind of teachers that come along to to look after them that are kind of standing standoffish, and it takes a long a while to for them to kind of break down. So I think it's yeah. something with about about being children, you know, that that play again. Well, it just normalizes everyone to be you. You're all the same. You're all playing football, and you realize, oh, we are all the same. We're yeah. all we're all humans. To- totally, yeah. And they all mix and and you know have lifelong friendships. It is tremendous, you know. Doesn't what, matter what background you're from or where you're from. Yeah, and what was something interesting? Or on this note, we'll talk about a few, a couple of other things. But what struck me was we we're talking upstairs, and it's something I hadn't thought about. I'd always associated football academies or youth football with, you say, streets football. People from coming from impoverished communities working their way up. And I think the English team in the last World Cup was relatively impoverished. The, the background, but we were having a discussion where. You were saying you've spoken to people in academies, and obviously it's not statistical kind of sort of summary, but your experience was that they were saying, actually, it's often middle class, upper middle class families who are providing kids for academies, who are picking up these kids who eventually become the small talent pool that they're selecting professionals from because of the commitment, the finance required to put a kid through an academy. Now, it's not they go out in the back garden like or, or in the Craiger estate like George Best and kick a ball against the curb uh, from, from dawn till dusk. It's actually... They need parental kind of um, involvement and money. Yeah, d- definitely. And even before they get to the ca- academy stage, um, to be looked at, you've got to be at a club, a grassroots club, and that's expensive as well. Mm. You know, a lot of kids can't afford the, the membership fee, or parents can't afford the membership. They can't afford the boots. They can't afford the kit. So those kids aren't even going to, you know, to the first rung of the ladder. Um, and that's why we do with the National Children's Football Week. We, we have a National Children's Football Week, which is a free V3, spelled F-R-E-E, you know, so the mm. kids can play for free. But I think definitely, you know, the travel, I was talking to one dad, um, 
and the travel that he was involving, you know, the amount of money he was spending on petrol yeah. and, and, and the time. You associate that with sort of uh, Judy Murray in tennis, don't you? You don't necessarily think of that in football. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's a very, very good book um, called Every Boy's Dream written by a friend of mine, Chris Green, um, which kind of goes into the kind of academies and, and also kind of tracks the players. What happens when they just kind of get dropped? You know, they yeah. just kind of fall so, so far. Yeah. I think it was a bizarrely on TalkSport on the way over as a guy from Rudimental, I don't forget his name, but the musician, but he was a youth footballer and he's trying to start a programme to look at that gap between 13, 14 and 21 where you may have the dream come to an end and then and then what happens at that whatever point it does because suddenly your identity and your, your sense of direction has to, has to completely start again. No, and, and absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, and, and I, the statistics are it's less than 1% or something, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's... I think even in Academy, so it's about 1%. Yes, that's maybe, right, yeah. when you're even in there. And, and even when you kind of see the under-18s team, you know, like the Man United yeah. team that won the kind of, the, a few years ago, they had the kind of, you know, there were about three players made, made it professionally, you know. Mm. So even at that late stage. So I think it's, you know, uh, see, George Best... Um, you know, he did, he played street football and he played schools football yeah, and, and kind of local district, but he didn't go to Manchester United. He was about 15, 16. Mm. That, that, you know, that yeah. was... They fed him steak and Guinness, wasn't it? I think yeah, it was the, yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah. That. <laughs> that, you know, you, and now, as you say, kids are being picked up at, up at, up at um, you know, kind of four or five. There's a classic one that Chris Green said about... Um, um, one child had to have his nappy changed at half time. Wow, wow! And that's pre- but then you're, you're you're almost fatalistic. These are the kids that are going to make it from four or five when they're eighteen, twenty, twenty one. So the, the kids that aren't playing those those games, grassroots games that are feeding the academy, suddenly are on the outside looking in. And when you're a parent and when you see little kids, you realise the rate of development is so different, isn't it, across individuals and, oh. and what they're going through in their life. They may not be playing football. They might not be in a space to play it may not be confident at that stage it's, there's so many variables to, yeah. to close doors yeah ab- absolutely um, I mean I know just from you know I, I ran a, a grassroots football team from under 6 to under 18 and, and the kid that won best player of the year under 13 <laughs> was just the one who had the first growth yeah. spurt yeah, he yeah. stopped at 14 and he was the smallest <laughs> by under 18 and he was yeah. I remember that being at school the kids go off to trials and you sort of go to Aston Villa or Chelsea or something and they'd be really big and then you'd re- see them at 16, 17 you realise they can barely trap a ball that's right and and there's there's the whole thing about the birthdays you know that, that oh yeah most kids going into academies are kind of born in you know um, would be September would it when the cuts yeah that's right finish, September yeah. October kind of November time and and only a tiny percentage of you know we're we're actually um kind of born um you know kind of later in the year in the, yeah. the school year but I think they they once kind of did the England World Cup team and I think it was quite it was actually quite Evenly come produced because the kids that were the kind of smaller ones were always having to punch above their weight. Yes. So like you're talking about younger, yeah. you're playing against older kids. Yeah. So it was difficult for them. Um, and that's the whole thing about kind of, you know, the kind of street football. When you think about those people, the, the stars, the kind of George Bests and, and mm. you know, Bobby Charlton's and stuff, Kevin Keegan's, if you read their kind of autobiographies and you look at the way, you know, they played. Uh, football. I I wrote a book which was um, the publisher said was the worst selling book they ever had. Called... Yeah, I've got I've got a copy of that. I'm going to read that. What's what was... chat legs and um, 
Punch of Balls. It's an extraordinary title. Uh, and, the, and the reason for that is is the fast show, um, Paul Whitehouse and, and co. Yeah. Had actually copyrighted um, Jumpers for Gold. Had they really? Yeah. Which is unbelievable. I thought that was kind of, you know. Could, so you anyhow. can't imagine sort of comedians being no. that kind of, sort so, of business um, ruthless. Uh, so, yeah, that was, so we had to kind of call it that. But I, I went around and I um, interviewed kind of both professional and amateur players and I uh, I interviewed Tom to Tom Finney mm. and he said that he used to play uh football in uh Moore Park just just near the the, the Preston ground mm-hmm. and he said it would usually be 15 20 a side and um he said there was no point passing the ball because you'd never get it back yeah so he just kept the ball for as long as he could so not only would would um the opposition be trying to tackle him his yeah. teammates would try and tackle him as well because they were getting fed up. <laughs> so that's how you kind of produce uh you know an international and he said know, he would talk about individuality as well because maybe absolutely. academies homogenize players and, and pro- kind of almost a replica of of each other rather than that individual sort of flair and uniqueness that's right and he and he'd be playing against older kids you know younger kids um and and that, that that's the kind of key that you know if you want if you want to produce an amazing dribbler of the ball that's how you bring it up yeah but then you're in a kind maybe an academy and you're kind of doing 1v1s or it'd be interesting how, how messi came up through barcelona's academy or whether he learned it as a smaller kid in argentina where where he got that dribbling ability from I think, yeah, I think it, I mean, it, a lot obviously depends on the coach, but I mean, I just, I, you know, I really, I do ask academies this and they said, oh no, we'd, we'd be fine with him. But what if Gazza had gone to a through in the academy <laughs> system this day? He, I, A, I don't think, you know, he'd be picked. He'd probably be chucked out, you know, the, oh no, you're, you're too, you know. Too chubby. You know, either kind of weight or something, or or that he's he, hyperactive. Or, yeah, yeah, hyperactive, and he's not listening to the coach, and he's not doing as he's told. Um, you know, if 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 you're a real talent, you kind of leave them alone. You yeah, because you can only spoil them really, um, because they actually know more than any other coach. Mm. You know, you you can do little bits. With them, but that natural thing, don't coach it out of him. And I think we just coach. Well, most we, of it comes down to repetition, doesn't it? I think, and, and to, to master anything and skill, it's not necessarily about being told something. It's about doing it a, a lot of times, and particularly ball yeah. skills, motor skills like that. Yeah, and 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 that's and that's what it, and that's the whole thing. Nowadays, there's so many, um, there's so many distractions. Then we would go out and you'd play football for, you know, you could play football for ten hours a day. You, you'd stop every now and again and. You know, go and do something else, but then you come back to football. Yeah. So you could play the whole summer holidays. You could be playing ten hours every day during the you know the summer holidays. Do, do you think it is physical space that's the issue now? And I wonder whether things are being commercialised as well. So there's always camps that you can go on. Like someone says to me, "Oh, your daughter could go to this camp, and this is fifty quid for an hour a day of tennis for a week or whatever it is." And you think it is costly. And you think it was so much simpler in a sense where you just had an area where kids who lived in the community went and played upon it. Is it just, you know, having those those commons, the patch of green, whatever it is for kids to play on, is that being reduced, do you think, in, since your childhood? Well, um... All the streets are just busier. I, I, th- I think there's patches of green, but but kids just aren't encouraged. We, we did a project, and I got a bit of funding from the council uh, a few years back with Give Us Back Our Game on the estate where I live. There's a big kind of green. You never see kids playing there. Yeah. And we used to just put up goals. Yeah. Uh, a number of pitches. 
Um, and we were getting up to 100 kids would come. All different ages, and we just left them alone, so they go on. It's to, like cheese for a mousetrap, that isn't it? You put a goal up, and suddenly yeah. it's just swarm. Kids just come, yeah, yeah. And and so we, and we let them just play. So so for instance, there may be one pitch where two kids are messing around and 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 ruining the game. So it was just purely market forces. The other kids would move on to a different pitch and leave those two kids there, and they just played and played and played. But the next day, yeah, it would be deserted. And I just couldn't get my head around that. So they needed something, needed an adult press, something organised for them to yeah, come. Yeah, put goals up and and, and footballs. Um, but they could have done it themselves. Yeah, you know, I mean, but it's that's that's where we're kind of living. You know, that that's what's happening now. And I think sometimes it was the lack of space or where you were brought up. Um, you just need a wall, don't you? Sometimes kick a ball against kick a ball against the wall is the best thing you can do. But um, the guy, um, Paolo Di Canio, he was brought up uh, out at, in near Rome and he lived on an estate and it was a, a very small, it was concrete yeah. and it was about the size of a 5v5 pitch. Yeah. But they usually played 12 aside, 10 aside. <laughs> so, so he learned to dribble. A, you, didn't, you couldn't fall because then you hurt yourself so you stay on your feet. Yeah. And he dribbled in unbelievably tight spaces. Yeah. So later on, when he's a premiership footballer, he's dribbling in the most tightest spaces in, uh, in the penalty area because of the environment he was brought up in. And that's, that's interesting. You wouldn't wonder whether psychologically it toughens him as well to a point. And maybe Di Canio may have been accused of, of simulation at some points, but certainly George Best, I remember in his autobiography, and he played against people like Chopper Harris, who was at our charity game. And he said that you know his legs would be black and blue, but on principle, if he got chopped down in the box, he'd try and stay on his feet, which is almost an anathema to, to modern football. But there was that toughening process of, of those playground and, and street games. Yeah, you, you had to kind of earn your, your badge, you know, so... The classic thing was, you know, when you were usually the youngest, you were stuck in goal. Hmm. But there was a fairness about um, uh, playground football in that, and this, this is totally different from kids' football now, organised kids' football. Yeah. If a team are winning, say, 5 nil, Switch it over. You okay. stop the game and you, you switched a couple of players over because it had to be competitive. Yeah. Because then... It was more fun. Yeah, and you have to deal with the sense of, oh, he's a better player than he. And you had to deal with that sense of competition, which perhaps kids are shielded from, and that that kind of inherent, like, well, actually, yeah, we need to balance it up because so-and-so is a bit better than so-and-so, someone's quicker than stronger. But what about as a parent being a football man? Because you coached up at Sirencester Town, didn't you? And, and your son, Charlie, who plays Curtin in this country, was there. What was the dynamic like with, with that one? Try not to be the, talk about the far show, the competitive dad in the, in the far show. Well, I kind of, I kind of put, poor lad kind of went the opposite way because most, uh, most uh, coaches' sons are centre forward and a captain and yeah. play every single minute. And we, we had a philosophy where, you know, we, we had equal playing time. And I put him a sweeper. <laughs> I was kind of hard on him. Wouldn't let him go up front. And then he played in the charity game the other week and he was hanging on the last def- defender the whole time and, sh- and sh- had about 500 shots, I think. <laughs> That's right. He was meant to play on the wing. <laughs> but even then he asked if I could go up front. I said, oh, no, yeah, you can put you on the wing. You know, you get more involved. And then, but he still went up front. <laughs> <laughs> He's rebelling at t- 29. Absolutely. Well, yeah. he, as soon as he went to college, 
And they had a college team. He went up front with the college teams because he was just so fed up kind of being so, kind of sweeper. So tough being the coach. You've got a, a kid in our team and he's a nice, lovely lad, but he couldn't control the ball or trap it. But his dad played him every week at right back and he showed up the ball would go straight past him and they score every time. But then they go the other way, like you're saying, it's almost you overcompensate and, and don't give them their dues because sometimes you have the sons, the, the, the dad's uh, son is the, the coach's son is the, is the best player, but you maybe they don't allow him to be the best player because of, uh, of that element. So it's a tricky one for you, isn't it, to, to do that and to encourage him to enjoy it and not to feel pressurised, I suppose, because that's the beauty of playing sports. You don't see it as a, a job or an exam, the things you're doing at school. Like it's, it's, I think retaining the fun is, is key. Yeah, very much so. And I think there's a lot of pressure on, actually on the coach because the parents, my kind of philosophy was, was, to, was to not say too much. Yeah. You know, let the kids, because you, know, you did the training in the week, but the game is really about them. Um, Were they watching you to check that you, you're not going to put Charlie up front or something? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. But the, the coaches are exp- the, the parents are expecting you to coach from the sideline. If, yeah. you, if they don't hear you saying anything, they don't think you're a good coach, that you know nothing about coaching. And the more you, you say, the more they think you know... Which perception and reality, right. but that's that goes up to the Premier League, doesn't it? When people say, "Oh, I love the way so and so jumps around on the touchline," and if they're a more reserved type, like an Arsene Wenger or a Manuel Pellegrini, and they sit there and just sort of take notes or, or think about things that people think they they don't care about it, and they're you know they're, they're daydreaming about what they're having for dinner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you hear that all the time. He doesn't show any passion on the touchline. Well, if the players don't know their job, you know, <laughs> it's at half time when they kind of come out and the, you know they'll make kind of changes. But also, but we, I always think that jumping up and down and shouting at people can actually work counterproductively for, for com- a lot a lot of players. Completely, but it's a kind of British thing, isn't it? That, that yeah. we kind of that's it's all about the passion and, and stuff. And and um, yeah, loads of times people say, "Well, you don't say anything," or all the and then the parents start kind of, you know, giving their tactical things. So you've got five different sets of parents shouting different instructions <laughs> to one player as he gets the ball. Poor kid, no wonder he's confused. Yeah, it is. It's a lot. The kids, you know, be interesting to enter that world of my little girl hopefully plays. She's into ballet and all sorts of things at the moment. It's what I always wonder about women's football. I spoke to Rachel Yankee, sort of legendary England international, and in she talked about it. We have a sort of just an open discussion and saying, you know, I wonder about women's football because if the fan base is going to be young girls, they're so much more emotionally balanced and rounded than, you know, than young men. I, can I say, I've got friends who have got babies who are driving up to Burnley at the weekend, four hours there, four hours back to watch a game. It's like, women are just too sensible to, to champion that kind of obsessive element because fans are, the behaviour, if you look, look at it at paper, it's sometimes just illogical, isn't it, to spend 13 hours following a, a bunch of people kicking a football on a weekend. Yeah, it does seem mad. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely crazy. But I, w- I will say that, you know, from what I've seen, especially with kind of mixed football with kids, is that um, mixed football makes girls better footballers and it makes boys better footballers. Yeah. Um, makes and- probably boys better people as well, doesn't it? Because girls are very thoughtful quite often, you know, emotionally intelligent, empathic and sort of understanding of others sometimes. And the way they play the game, I think there's a natural thing um, uh, for boys to rush towards the ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Honey pot football, as we call it. Whereas the girls kind of take up positions. And yeah. think, well, if I stay here, I'll probably receive the ball. Yeah. So they're kind of thinking about it in a very different way. So, um, well, it's a, it a lot more in, innately humble girls. They sort of know their level. Whereas boys, got a four year old nephew who's the same age as my daughter. And 
you know, he can, he's, he's a clumsy, he's falling over all the time and, can, you know, kicks the ball but then falls over. And my little girl's very good, she can kick right and left foot. But he sort of says there in front of us and said, I think I'm probably the best player in the world now. And actually asked us that this is true, that he believes it. My other nephew, who's four, uh, on my wife's side, thinks that he's genuinely the strongest person in the world. He's Hulk smash. So it's like you think, maybe yeah, that they need to sort of knit people together and corral them a little bit, the girls, yes. with a bit of, bit of common sense sometimes. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it, it, of course, in my day, um, there weren't any girl, girls involved in our football at all, which yeah. is kind of sad in, in a way. But I think, yeah, the, the women's game, you know, especially with this World Cup that's that's come, I think yeah. things have changed massively just from that. You it's know, a huge, I, I huge thing for, for women, I think, to have a lingua franca, isn't it? Because my wife's always said to me, when you go abroad and you meet anyone, blokes have traditionally had that ability just to converse, whether it's... Gascoigne, or if you go to Italy, or so you know, suddenly you resonate with people, and it's a it becomes a common language there and a community thing. Mm. Oh, ab- absolutely, yeah. It's it's. Um, I mean, I used to go. Um, I used to work for an electronics company, and and I knew nothing about electronics. <laughs> and we used to go round. I used to go around with a kind of it was an American company, and we'd go to kind of uh, Madrid or somewhere, and. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just started talking about kind of football yeah. and Real Madrid or something yeah. like that. And then they'd be like, ah, yes. And <laughs> it was a great kind of leveller. And the American guy didn't know what the hell I was talking about. You yeah, know? Americans miss out on that international conversation sometimes. They're getting there a little bit now, maybe, particularly on the, the women's side, actually. It's been championing uh, football for them in that side of things. But talk about this country. And there's a football thread, isn't there, for those of us who are football mad. Kerry Mucklow, your daughter Daisy, wrote it and... Uh, carry the main character she's she's always wearing football kits isn't she it's a, an interesting part of of Brit- british british at least they call it americana but this sort of football shirt generation in the 90s and it's it's an interesting part of it it's obviously she it rubbed off on her football in some in some presence in some ways yeah i mean it's her brother that's the real kind of football nut charlie um but we we just kind of thought that it was just something that you know a girl like Carrie would would wear. Yeah. But it was kind of um, the interesting thing was well, what football shirt should we wear? <laughs> so first we thought about Siren Town. Yeah. Shirt, but we thought no, we need something a bit more. Then it was kind of well, what about Cheltenham Town? Yeah. But we kind of thought Swindon would probably you know that that may be the kind of one that's. Well, Swindon have been lurking down the same sort of level as Cheltenham, haven't they? League One, League Two, but of course, twenty odd years ago, when I suppose a lot of the references in in this country, they were Premier League teams, Swindon Town. Yeah, that that's right. It just seemed to be kind of more of a kind of fit, really. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's Glenn, Glenn Hoddle managing, and they've got big yeah, there, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Glenn Hoddle, yeah, managing and playing sweeper, funny enough. So Charlie, watch him. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, it seems to be kind of a good fit, and and of course, you know, Daisy wearing the the Swindon Town dress, which was uh, <laughs> uh, I, I will tell a little story. She just <laughs> Swindon slightly it was. Um, the lady who was designing the dress uh, rang up Swindon and said, oh, is it possible that you could send me a shirt? Yeah. And they made her pay for it. <laughs> Despite With all the, the publicity what, do you they're going to get. <laughs> yeah, do they think that if Kerry Monclow, has it boosted the Swindon town attendance? I don't know whether it would have. It certainly gives recognition to the, the kit, I think. Well, absolutely, yeah. But actually, the, the work we're, we're with the football charity, we're, we're doing hopefully doing some work and twinning a pitch with... Um, 
Yeah. The community program. They've got an extremely good community program there. So so hopefully we're going to be working with them. The amazing thing is with this country is that you know, I live not too far away. I said it resonates with me, but we talked about the reason I got into it was actually Tom White, who's a presenter on Sky Sports, and he's been on the WTAF podcast with the boys as well because he's a big fan, um, which is a This Country Fans podcast. And he said that he grew up in the Northeast in Annick, which he's a Sunderland fan. But he said that still those community people resonate, isn't it? And I think... It is, there is that thread, which you're talking about football, is in this country as dysfunctional as some of the characters like Mandy are, deep down, and Martin Mucklow. There is a sense that this is community and people being connected, and, and whether they're eccentric or not. Yeah, no, that that's right. I mean, it's it's very much, you know, a, lot, a lot of the people in, in this country are kind of based, you know, I mean, based on kind of people that are around here yeah. or, or on a number of people, you know, one of the characters will be based on a number of people, but every village and town has them. You yeah. Know, it's just that kind of, <laughs> you know, it's just, and everyone says, I know it, I know who Kerry's based on or I knew Curtin's based on because they all know, everyone knows. Someone. Is that, is that caused any problems though? People have cottoned on to who it is, who Kerry Mucklow is, for instance. Um, not, not really, because it's kind of based on probably two or three kind of different people. There's this, but certainly Mandy is based on a, a girl who lives up on the estate where we live and, and she's yeah. very happy with it. You know, yeah. she's kind of been immortalized, you know, and her dog's out of a lot bigger than Tyson as well. So <laughs> <laughs> That's the amazing thing is that that, that thing of Mandy, that concept of I'm the artist, where you say artist kid in the county or whatever it was. I mean, that, in Malvern, that was a thing that people actually used to say, who's the hardest kid? And it would be like, and that resonates. I don't know whether that's, you know, because I was born in London and lived there. And my family's a lot from London, but I grew up in that sort of rural community in my teen years. And it is that, I don't know whether that translates to other parts of bigger cities, but certainly that kind of thing of he's the tough guy in the estate or the community is it's quite a, a, re- a resonant thing, isn't it? But then they, ultimately they all seem to have some bizarre affection for each other, which is just sort of how humanity is, I suppose. I, yeah, I think so. And I think, I think the smaller the kind of village, and that's why, because we, we first looked at kind of Sirencester, but about doing it in Sirencester, but the community is a bit too big. Yeah. And I think when you're in a village where there's hardly anything going on, that you have to throw yourself into the scarecrow competition and all those things because there's nothing else there. Yeah. So that's when you hear the bo- have the bombs and also you start mixing with different generations. You know, I think like the vicar story and things like that. Be- yeah. Because you're, you know, um, and that's it, it's an interesting one that you're bought into um, a, a community where there's not enough probably kids to make a football team and f- actually. On the sporting front, mm. I know that there's a whole raft of, you know, Bayonne Borg and all those tennis players all came up in kind of rural areas and they played lots of different sports with lots of adults and kids because there wasn't, and there was never yeah. enough players their own age. Yeah. And um, the kind of the, the hot housing kind of stuff that was done in. Stockholm didn't produce tennis players but these other tennis players <laughs> came from these rural communities where they're playing five different sports and you had to play with kind of men or older kids or you know um, so it's quite interesting where, where is this country set just geographically because Charlie said it's somewhere more towards Cheltenham is it a village from 
from Science as to where we are now. Yeah, it's it's North Leach is is where it, ah, it's based. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I drove through North Leach for the first ever time because the A forty was closed the other day. Right. Yeah, okay. So you, yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> might have seen them filming. Um, yeah. So it's it's based in in North Leach, and we kind of looked at various villages. They looked at Bolton on the Water, but it was a bit too touristy. Mm. Um, and yeah, the least there is the more that kind of mixing with ages and mixing yeah. in with the village there is. Yeah. It's a contrasting area, isn't it, Cotswolds? Because you have that kind of the London crowd coming up and, and sort of as tourists and the, seeing the sort of old uh, cottages as quaint and there's a big, you know, you go and pay 20 quid for a sandwich in some of these hotels and things. Yeah. So, but then you've got that other sort of more rural kind of traditional community here as well. And the vicar's interesting because I thought about that because the sort of the role that he plays trying to bring the whole community together, encourage people like Curtin and, and Kerry and the piece to develop and, and go out and seek, seek progression. And it was funny because I went to do a Cheltenham Town Meet the Fans Day with the players and I hosted a Q&A with the manager, Michael Duff, and... It was nice to sort of see that. And I realised that that's what the football club can be in sports. It's a, a community mixing point, probably like the church used to be, I suppose, that in a way as we get more secular, that's why some people who sort of think, oh, our obsession with sports, regressive. And they say, oh, it's the end of our society. Look at what happened to the Romans and the Greeks and all this kind of stuff. It was a sense of their society was falling apart. Actually, it can be progressive because it can replace something that maybe the, the church gave people as just a, a meeting point. Mm. I think I think definitely. I don't um, I don't think we're as organised as other countries. I mean, the country that I always um, look up to in terms of organised sport for all the community is is, is Holland, the Netherlands. Mm. And um, uh, we used to I used to run um, with a, a a Dutch guy from the northeast of England. We used to take coaches, um, both amateur and professional, over every year to kind of Holland. To see the kind of setups there, yeah. and it's fantastic. The clubs, whether it's football, whether it's um, you know hockey, whatever, the money pumped into by the government is extraordinary, because they're they're you know they're and basically what they're saying is well we don't need to spend so much on healthcare on healthcare and prisons yeah. if you have lots of sport and the that's what I used to think about the NHS. But people talk about let's throw more money at the NHS, and you think, well, let's throw more money at preemptive things, just general health, well-being, like like sport, I suppose. Yeah, we we went to we went to a town. I can't remember the name of the town now, um, which was the same size as as uh, Cheltenham, mm. and they had something unbelievably like seventy tennis courts. Wow! And uh, the kind of football club, the the hockey club all were in this huge kind of center and the facilities were absolutely extraordinary so we kind of said well how many people locally are involved in sport yeah and it was 50 percent of the population wow so it's you, around about 20 percent. and a bit obesity and type 2 diabetes all that stuff's probably lower there as well yeah and mental health yeah absolutely and and the other thing was all the kids um cycle to and from games yeah that, that's the kind of norm. You notice that profoundly because it's across the you know it's across the, the the sort of English Channel and you can see English TV in in Holland. But I spent some time there a little bit as a, a teenager, and it's amazing that the general health is there's not people who are overweight. Everyone does cycle. They're you know slim, well, 
um, whether they have a few drinks and a few joints as well, but they seem, yes. seem very, very happy. Um, but you're a Fulham fan. Quickly wanted to ask your thoughts because Fulham's a very convivial place. When I lived in London, I was telling you that a lot of people, my friends used to get season tickets because their clubs came from elsewhere and they knew when they were in London, they'd go there and it'd be welcoming and it was really cheap as well. I think it's 300 quid for a season ticket, which for a Premier League team, this was sort of eight, nine years ago, is incredible. Um, but what football does, it gives that sense of community and togetherness, but what it can, as humans, we always have a yin and a yang, don't we? Sometimes it can create that them and us, the tribalism for the Germans and, and the Brits playing in, in the first world war. You have the sort of sometimes xenophobia of international football as well. Do you, do you think that's something that we can move past? Because it always amazes me that, that you know, people sometimes say to me, oh, you're a Man United fan. How are you working with ex-Liverpool players at, at work? And you think, like, it's just human <laughs> beings who, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, it's not, it's not Braveheart yeah. fighting the English. Yeah. I, I think I think there's there's some people, but every, everybody that loves football kind of gets on. And I think that you know most kind of games you go to in the pubs, it's kind of mixed fans, and you you talk about football, yeah. you know your passion for the game, and the, you know the club you support. So I, I think there's a lot more. I mean, I used to kind of go to football in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, well, that's a good point actually, because yeah, and and then you'd kind of and the crowds were really small, you know, because because of the violence and stuff, and you you never quite knew if you were gonna. I just want to say you'd actually be stepping over people who'd been injured in fights at some points. Yeah, I mean, in the seventies, it was, um, and there wasn't much kind of police, so you'd have both sets of the kind of hooligans would be in the same stand with no police and. They fought for most of the game. Is that know, just because people were unhappy with the society? You think there was an outlet for their, their rage and, and sort of sense of injustice, or was it? What was it? I just think I think that people just had a kind of got a bit of an identity for you know for the for the um, um, you know, the kind of club and, and a, a yeah. following, and it was just it just that kind of just went too yeah. far but I think you know, I think a lot of people like to fight you know, that's, yeah. unfortunately that's, well, that's what I think well that's interesting because they cover a lot of boxing and they put boxing um, gyms into communities that suddenly they, uh, the crime goes down in the area the violence goes down because young men have got that testosterone they, they like it but they regulate it it becomes you know, within rules and they learn respect and they learn the meaning of violence so it's it's an interesting one. You join Fulham in the championship. It's bittersweet, isn't it? Because I've oh, got I fans, fans who go down. Yeah. Oh, I love the championship. I was so pleased to get out of the Premier. God, that was so. <laughs> what, just <laughs> losing it, spend a hundred million pounds and lose every week. Well, that was it, you know. And it was, it was kind of, and the atmosphere in the stadiums were awful. Um, Why was I don't know. It's become it's because and the atmosphere at Fulham because you get so many uh, kind of tourist yeah. supporters, and, and suddenly I you know, noticed even though we've got. You know, one whole side is is closed. There's a lot better atmosphere on Saturday against uh, Blackburn than than there was kind of last year because you know it's 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 Fulham supporters. You're not having kind of yeah hundreds of of kind of tourists kind of coming just to kind of go and see a, a you know a game. Uh, so it's a it's an odd mix, isn't it, Fulham? Because you've got the sort of glamour of being in that part of West London. You've got sort of, you know, luminaries like George Best who played Rodney Marsh at some point for Fulham and the glitz and, glitz and glamour of the yesteryear, but then it's almost sort of, there's a sort of rustic, sort of pure element to it as well, isn't there? Yeah, I, the ground is just wonderful. Yeah. the setting and walking through kind of Bishop's Park. It's by the river, you know, the cottage uh, and and the Archibald Leach stand, you know, the kind of, which is great too listed it's just a lovely environment you know and the streets around it and the pubs to go beforehand 
Um, so it's a, it's a great experience. The crowd are knowledgeable and very friendly. Um, Organic and soup and stuff, don't you? Yeah. It's very healthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's just a nice, and when you go away as well, there's never any trouble. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you people say, Who's your, where's your firm? Well, we haven't got one of them. Probably <laughs> <laughs> law firm, more likely, got a few yeah. solicitors working for exactly. Yeah. exactly. So I'm on, I was, I was in the stand and, uh, um, in the Hammersmith End uh, at the weekend, and uh, what's his name was in there uh, having a having a pint. Um, you know, oh, Stephen pointless, Fry. No pointless, oh, the pointless um, guy. Yeah, the Richard you know, is Richard, Richard Osborne. Yeah. Uh, Os- Osman. Yeah, yeah. And people like that. And uh, Hugh Grant. Uh, Hugh Grant goes yeah. down. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> can't imagine it kicking off with with Hugh Grant and Richard Osman. Well, Richard Osman's quite big, isn't he? So. Yeah, he's, he's tall. Um, yeah. Uh, take you back to this country we've got the third series of filming now I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat to me uh, here today in, in Siren Session in the basement actually of your, your son Charlie's house when you when you go back to to filming and you become an actor in your 60s that sense of performance because it's, it's it's comparisons with elite sport isn't there anything you have to where it goes lights camera action you have to perform how did you psychologically approach that were you nervous did you um, did you do any sort of mental state techniques to get into it or is it just you reach an age where you just think ah, let's have a go enjoy it the first series I was a bit because the first bit I did was was filming in the caravan which was kind of odd and I, I you know, the whole thing about you know yeah so it took a little bit of a while but having uh, cameras in, yeah. in the vicinity yeah and and uh, but um yeah, by the third series, I'm I just I just kind of mess around most of the time. I'm just trying to. <laughs> but your daughter suggesting you play Martin Mucklow must have worried you at some point. You think you sort of see me see this character in me? Well, the stuff that they've written for me is is you know appalling. They ought to be arrested. It's really? kind of very strange <laughs> yeah. stuff to write for your father to well, kind yeah. of say and do. My wife, my wife's kind of shocked. You know this bloke. You know, and there's some of the stuff that uh, they make me say. But <laughs> well, the, the, the line, or yeah, the line that you, you said to Kerry, you haven't listened to a word I'm saying. I, I'm incapable of love, or whatever you said in that. Yeah, was the no powerful empathy. No empathy. <laughs> yeah, like, they make out me a right bastard, and I, <laughs> I, um, I, um, I never get stopped for a, a selfie because um, they think uh, you're Martin like that. That's it. I mean, slugs. God bless them. Who? Yeah. Who, Sadly passed away. He um, he was such a big celebrity here in the town, and I kind of swap notes with him. I kind of go for a coffee and say, um, "It'd be like March or April." And I'd say, "How many selfies have you had in the town?" He said, "About two hundred and fifty." He said, "How many of you?" Have? I said, "None." <laughs> and I, in fact, Charlie and I went to Cheltenham a few weeks ago, and we we're kind of going our own way, kind of just doing a bit of shopping, and then meeting yeah. up for a bite to eat. And some guy stopped. Um, Charlie and asked him for a, a, a self and he said I saw that Martin Mucklow earlier I wasn't going to ask that bastard for a <laughs> it's so funny how people yeah people judge people like football yeah. managers and football players if they're a tough tackling midfielder you're going to be a horrible person so it's interesting how they how they do that um, but it's I mean, it's brilliant it's a brilliant character a brilliant part you've, you've, you've absolutely you've absolutely nailed it so best of best of luck for series three looking forward when's it going to come out uh, I think it'll be out kind of early part of next year probably yeah. Um, so yeah really looking forward to seeing it it should be fun yeah definitely check out if you haven't seen it and Charlie's a funny character isn't he because he reminds me a little bit of Mackenzie Crook in The Office as well he's got a similar the hairstyle yeah he actually curtains. met him he met him at some awards thing and they had a kind of photograph together and, and, and Mackenzie's a big uh, um, they showed us some clip he's a big fan of the show as well which is lovely yeah um, they kind of asked him you know what what he's been watching this year and he said 
this country, you know, he said it's blown me away, which was, you know, just for the kids, they thought that was fantastic. Yeah, as a dad, you must be, obviously, I think they're probably, what, 29 and carries it, 30, days in a 30. 32 so. and 30, yeah. Yeah, I'm just proud. So proud. It's just, it's just extraordinary, you know. I mean, um, you know, coming from a, a two up, two down, you know, rented place on an estate in Sirencester, they've done bloody well. well. That's what, that was the ingredients there, wasn't it? That's the well, material. Well, I think so, yeah, because they had to share a room, you know, there was no other place to go and <laughs> if they fell out, you know, Charlie would sit, you know, they had to share a bloody bedroom until, you know, yeah. late on because there was no other, nowhere, nowhere else to stay. Yeah. And proper performers though, particularly Daisy, I mean, she put the charity match, she was co-commentating on the, the Tannoy and she went for about three or four hours in character. The first line was, they fear me in North Cerny, they fear me in <laughs> it just went from that point as Kerry Mucklow throughout the afternoon just heckling everyone on the pitch yeah now you know what we've had to live with all these years I mean <laughs> absolute nightmare and Char- Charlie's a lot more uh, he's a great actor because he's a lot more um, relaxed and as you say a little bit more introverted than, than Curtin who's is a wild card yeah you, he's he's kind of had to be you know because I think you know having a sister like Daisy you know yeah, all these kind of years you know she's she's such a big presence in the room you know that that you know she's she's uh very talented but he's yeah he kind of it's kind of been nurture and nature and he's just kind of come along but everything he does you know um he's done kind of well you know awful, and, yeah. and he's he, he he's a perfectionist and i think that the two the two together although they're very different it's you know it's it's they, they make each other stronger you know it's worked very well Brilliant. Well, it's a great family story and uh, a little bit of football in there with Swindon Town. Just trying to get Fulham shirt. Get Martin Mucklow to rock up in a Fulham shirt. <laughs> uh, cheers, Paul. Take care. Great. Thanks, Ed. Cheers.